Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Team, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you here with me. An honor and a privilege. Much to discuss. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. B-U-C-K. Thank you for all of your uh, kind and uh, supportive notes and messages about my time today on the outnumbered couch over at Fox News. That was uh, quite a lot of fun. Um, And if you you didn't see it, I think they probably have it up on foxnews.com or at least some clips of it. It was uh, was a lively discussion. Um, Those ladies were great. We had a good good talk on air. So, two big stories today. We got some news stories. Yay. Isn't that nice? Uh, from what we've had to dive into uh, this week. Um, well, yay that they're new. One of them is positive. One of them is clearly not. Or at least it's not about something that is positive. Well, let me start. This is kind of a good news, bad news, news day. Let me start with the good news. And the good news is that the House has, in fact, done something. I know. What a shock. This is, you know, oh, here's House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy who's talking about it. I think we sent a message to the doubters and the critics. The American people do not want hard work to be punished. We do not accept decline. We do not accept that Washington knows how to spend our money better than we do. So I have a different message for the American people. To those trying to find a job, that long search is coming to an end. This is your comeback. This is your comeback, McCarthy says. This tax package, uh, the tax cuts package, will help the economy create growth and, and all the rest. We'll have a tax expert joining later. Not like a, you know, this is what you can, this is what you can't write off expert, but somebody who deals with the economics of all this joining a little later to talk about how this works and i want to try to push him on the specifics of who this will benefit and how it will benefit them and not because because look i i understand it's important that we all hear the positive rhetoric around this growth people keep their money lower tax that's all great i'm all on board for that but it's also important i think that the american people who believe in and buy into all of that, have a real understanding, a real grasp of, well, how? Not just the what, but the how, right? What will this do for us? It will create growth. It'll mean you keep more. But how will it do that? Why will it make hiring better? This is an extension of the question I like to ask on the show. What does that mean? In this case, it's what will it do? I mean, what will it really do? Not just the first line or two of talking points about it. So we'll see if we can get into some of that. But back to the happy talk and the, the good stuff and the yay. Here's Paul Ryan on how it's amazing. This is nothing short of extraordinary. 
Let me just tell you, getting 218 members to agree on something as complicated as the most... Two, uh, yeah, two, well, we needed 218, but... Okay, let me rephrase it. Getting 227 members to agree on something as complicated... This country has not rewritten its tax code since 1986. The powers of the status quo in this town are so strong, yet 227 men and women of this Congress broke through that today. That is powerful. Now, I don't want to be that guy. Well, actually, I guess I'm, I'm choosing right now to be that guy. But the celebration may be a little premature, a little bit, Tyrone's agreeing with me here a little bit. In, in considering that this has to also make its way through the Senate, which is going to be harder, no question. It's going to be tight with the Senate. And Senator, uh, what, Senator Ron Johnson up in Wisconsin has already said that, you know, he, he's, he's not liking that this helps out corporations more than it helps out people who file under, what is it, an S-Corp? Uh, they... So it's like a, an individual proprietor and, and not a, it has to do with the way you, uh, you know, the way you, well, create your business, uh, the, the tax designation for it. So that could be an issue. That could be an issue. There's also the state and local issue, salt, state and local taxes, which for I know a lot of you listening to the show are like, not my problem. And you're right. For a lot of you, it is not your problem. For those of us who live in New York, particularly New York City or Los Angeles or really anywhere in California, is a problem. Uh, that means you're going you're to get hit, going to get hurt on this uh, on this latest tax bill. But part of the discussion always has to be that there are two bills right now. There's what the House has passed and there's what the Senate may pass. And not exactly the same. And if there are differences, they'll have to iron them out in, in committee afterwards or in conference. And so we're seeing the Congress here excited about something when i'm pretty sure last summer wasn't the congress all happy about a little obamacare stuff yeah the house obamacare a lot of backflips and busting out the champagne yeah i'm pretty sure paul ryan was all about the you know he's doing some disco moves he was having a great time but then the senate courtesy of senator john mccain uh did not actually push through anything and I worry that the celebration may be a bit premature in that I could see this thing running into some trouble again. Now, a few a few reasons for um, optimism. First of all, anything that Nancy Pelosi doesn't like has to be pretty good. Today, the bill, Republicans have brought forth a bill that is pillaging the middle class to pad the pockets of the wealthiest and hand tax breaks to corporations shipping jobs out of America and drastically increasing the national debt. My colleagues, the bill Republicans have brought to the floor today is not tax reform. It's not even a tax cut. It is a tax scam. <gasps> Nancy, such bold language. It's a tax scam. Uh, well, like I was saying, if Nancy hates it that much, you know it's got to be it's got to be kind of legit. It's got to be kind of good. So get excited about that. The fact that she seems to really despise this legislation that just made its way uh, through, pa- that passed in the House uh, that's that's a good sign. And, and also, let's all be honest about this. And people are asking 
earlier today, uh, well, I was asked this on, on Fox, you know, what about, what do you think Trump is having all these meetings about on Capitol Hill? On the one hand, I think he's trying to encourage. I think he's trying to coach. I think he's helping shape the message for the Congress that, you know, hey, all right, come on, guys. You, you got to do this. You got to get this done. You got to go. But it also is a reminder. I think Trump's mere presence is a reminder that until the GOP members of the Congress put a bill in front of this president that he fails to sign, any talk about how he is not getting it done or his agenda or whatever is it's not going to stick to Trump. It's going to stick to Congress for the midterms. And if it sticks to Congress enough, if it's enough of their problem that they lose either the Senate or the House and the Senate seems like it could be a real possibility, depends on what happens in a few different places. Then it's just going to be Trump with divided government and, you know, he's going to have to triangulate and moderate and all that stuff and people are going to freak out but what choice will he really have at that point right so the time is now for this republican congress now they have to do it now and they also have to show that they can accomplish one thing before they can move on to the next they have already had a few big misses congress has had a a few too many uh natural lights gone up to the wiffle ball tee and swung and missed and fallen down it has happened to the best of us by the way this scenario you know this is really it's when you know it's time to cut off the the natural light which is a beer that i I think only college kids drink i don't think i don't know if i've ever heard anybody who was out of college who was drinking natural light um it also it reminds me also of papa vodka haven't seen it since college and I, I realized that maybe maybe it was a sign that all of the handles of vodka that were being passed around all the different parties were uh, plastic and had like a special grip on them, you know, plastic with the grip. Yeah, there's that. Um, back to Congress, though. I think that they will they will do something because if they can't do this, they can do nothing. And if they can do nothing, then they are worthless. And we all know this. So we shall see. There's some also some components of this about Obamacare. We'll get into the specifics. I want to head into a break, though, because when I come back, what we will talk about is the latest new allegation of sexual misconduct against a sitting politician. Hmm. Who could it be? Well, you'll have to stay with me and we'll address this together when I come back. Be right back. So the latest powerful male to uh, run afoul of these these times we're in in which previous sexual conduct is coming back to uh, misconduct is coming back to haunt a lot of a lot of guys who are abusers harassers assaulters all the above and Al Franken this story if you don't know it and first of all Al Franken has always struck me as Somebody who was kind of snide and nasty and charmless and a jerk. I've seen him in different exchanges. I saw him in one exchange many years ago, well before I believe he was a senator with uh, with uh, Ann Coulter, and, and he was just a jerk. He wasn't funny. He wasn't smart. He's just nasty. He's a nasty person and comes across that way. And I've heard from people who have interacted with him that he is a jerk. Maybe not quite like Keith Olbermann 
worst jerk of all time, who, by the way, that's like unanimous. I've heard that from everybody that I know, that they say he's the meanest guy in the meanest guy imaginable. It's not surprising. I mean, MSNBC should be ashamed for paying that guy as much as they did. But, you know, the left embraced him. What can I say? Uh, anyway. But, yeah, Al Franken's always struck me as a jerk and he's not funny. And and he was really a, kind of a, 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 a downer even on SNL. I mean, just wasn't good. Just wasn't good. Anyway, that's all just my thoughts on Al Franken. It has nothing really to do with this story other than I don't like Al Franken very much. Uh, but in case, you know, any of you are wondering what happened here, Franken was on a USO tour and Leanne Tweeden, who is a former Playboy playmate and radio host now, uh, she was there and Franken kept trying to write in a comedy sketch comedy sketch in which he would surprise get to like make a lot of sexual innuendo and make out with her and like she's not this wasn't on snl i mean she didn't sign up to do a comedy sketch we understand but they're part of the uso tour and i guess he was like hey i'll write in a i'll write in a sketch and like you and i will make out a lot was kind of the what i what i gather what was going on here so she has come out now and and what's made it worse for franken who has a who has apologized and i'll get into that too in just a moment because who's allowed to apologize and who's not allowed to apologize? Very important distinction, isn't it? Always remember that. Some people, Democrats, are allowed to apologize still. With Republicans, it's total annihilation, ostracize, uh, ostracization. I'm not sure that ostracizing is a word. Uh, but you, you don't have a second chance. You don't have a second shot. You are told that you got to go and you're out. And you're ruined and humiliated. Democrats still get get to have a comeback option. Uh, but Tweeden also was in a photo where Franken is grabbing her chest while she's asleep. Now, she's wearing a flak vest and a helmet. Um, you know, it wasn't under the shirt. It was over the shirt. He's groping her. And you can see for yourself. I mean, you can go see the photo. Now, given the current environment environment we are in, in which... Any sexual misconduct of, of any kind is uh, grounds for I- immediate public excoriation. The Democrats are in, in a tough spot here. The Franken, by the way, is not going to step down. Nothing's going to happen. Leanne Tweeden has even come out and said that she's, you know, she's okay with this. Although I'm sure there's a lot of pressure on her to say that, you know, she she forgives and forgets. You know, people make mistakes. I, I mean, I'm not I'm not calling for him to step down. <laughs> you know, I, that's not my place to say that. If there are other people that come out and say he's done this, I mean, I don't know. Tyrone's telling me something important. I didn't know this. Tyrone, you're saying she's conservative. She is conservative. Now, um, she has done some work in the past for Fox, you know, you know, popped in on different shows and things like that. She is conservative. Okay. So so then it's not, she's not like a Democrat that feels pressure from her friends to, to go easy on on Franken, then, from what we can tell, she's just a conservative and, and doesn't want to make a huge, a, a, a bigger deal. Although it was, it's like the number one story on Fox News right now. It's a big deal. It's a very big deal. It seems like she really wanted an apology. And now that she's gotten one for herself personally, it seems like she's good. That doesn't mean we should be good. She's good. That's interesting. That's it. Will be interesting to see if, interesting to see if, uh, if, that is accepted. Well, of course, the view, the view accepted the apology on behalf of America that Franken gave. 
Now, what do you think about the fact that he has come forward and said, I apologize? Good. Well, yeah. he still yeah. did it. I mean, you know, well, does yeah. that make it any better? Well, I don't know. If it, listen, he didn't do it to me. You know, because you know? some men come out and they, they're like, I didn't do it. Yeah. I don't remember it like that. That's yeah, good to own well, up to it. He says, I apologize. No, but what about Trump? His people are okay. saying that oh those God. women... Now, what about, what about Trump? What about Trump? What's her name? Uh, the one that's, you know, oh, you know, Trump. Joy Behar. What about Trump? Um, isn't it also she just comes in there right away? You know, Republicans, what about them? Uh, there, there, there's a, an important distinction here. An important distinction about what happened here. And that is that there is a photo. So this whole, some people deny it. Well, maybe they deny it because they didn't do it. Or maybe they have a different explanation for it because... They, uh, you know, they remembered it differently or they thought that they were, you know, look, they're, they're, <laughs> this is going to be tough now to have this conversation whenever there's always going to be instances where someone thinks they're operating in a respectful area that might be, or they're being respectful, but it's kind of getting into a little bit of a gray area. Like, I'm not going to lie to you. Even now I feel a little, you know, when, when I see, I, I come across women in media all the time, you know, in the workplace, outside of the workplace. When, when I go in for a photo now. Do I just assume I can go hand, you know, hand on the back? You know, I, you know, I mean, do I ask? Right. I mean, if they put their hand on my back first, then I assume it's, a, you know what I mean? When you're just posing for a photo, someone comes up to me on the street. This just happened. I was outside of Fox. A guy came up to me. He was like, hey, man, I want to take a photo. I was like him and his wife want to take a selfie. It was great, by the way. If you're listening, it really, you know, like made my day. I was actually having kind of a rough day on Monday and you guys cheered me up a lot, but you know, I kind of feel like I got to wait until the wife puts her arm around my waist before I can put my arm around, even with the husband there, right? You know, I mean, I know that might seem a little extreme, but we're in this environment now where, you know, everything is being so hyper scrutinized that, you know, that's also a component of it. But with Franken, with Franken, there's a photo and the photo is is indefensible and it's gross. And so he's apologizing. Well, what else are you going to do? Say it's a doctored photo. Is he going to pull an Anthony Weiner and say that he, you know, he got hacked or whatever? Do you remember that, by the way? That's of all the stuff. And I still, it's on me that I haven't watched Weiner, the documentary, which is what it is called, which I know Amy and Ty are saying it's really good. And, and I will. My parents have said it's a, it's a very well-made documentary. I want to check it out. Amazing what a tragic, and it's, what a tragic ending. I mean, for, for, you know, for Weiner, I mean, you know, it's really tragic in the ancient uh, Greek sense of like, you know. No, no survivors. I mean, it. You know, Wiener's, Wiener's gotten. Well, he's in prison now. Um, but anyway, originally he came out when he was caught. It was done. He was like, "I'm hacked." He he went with that whole thing, and then he tried to run for mayor. I mean, oh, it's a whole separate story. Point here though is that apologizing when you're caught, when you're nailed, when there's no way around it. I don't know if you really get points for that. I think that's just what other choice do you have? Uh, so interesting to see how they're making excuses for Franken. Uh, we will talk econ and taxes, and let's focus this in a bit, shall we? What is this tax bill the House passed? What will it mean for you listening? Are you going to have more money? Is your business going to do better? We'll get into that after the break. The fact is, the first $55,000 an average family of four earns will not face a single penny of income tax. They have made it their mission to increase taxes on our fellow citizens. And my friends on the other side of the aisle, 
they have the audacity to call this a tax increase. In the end, they're defending a broken status quo. House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy going after the Democrats a bit there. What is the truth of this bill that was passed today in the House? Uh, We have somebody who can take us through all the ins and outs here. Art Laffer is on the line. He's a former Reagan economic advisor and the uh, chairman and founder of Laffer Associates. Art, great to have you. Thank you very much, Buck. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you very much. Appreciate you calling in. So let's just My let's pleasure. just start with this. What is the what are the the best two or three things that the House is? Let's assume the House bill goes through and the Senate bill. Let's assume that it's pretty much what it looks like it's going to be right now. What are the yeah, best things from it? Yeah, the corporate tax rate reduction is really the key to this whole bill. Cutting it from 35 to 20 percent makes the U.S. once again competitive. It'll create jobs, output employment. Uh, it'll even raise revenues, to be honest with you, even though they tell you it won't. People will shelter their income less. There'll be less tax evasion. There'll be more companies headquartered in the U.S. But most of all, it'll create jobs, output, and employment. Uh, and all economists agree that, you know, basically there are two taxes that really generate economic growth. One is cutting the corporate tax rate, and the other one's cutting the very highest income tax rates. Those are the real engines of growth, and this bill contains the corporate tax rate reduction. Now, can you explain to me, Art, so, so for people who are listening, it, let's say that we've got somebody listening who, who is an employee of, uh, I, I don't know, let's say yeah. uh, you know a, a paper company in the Midwest, right, a paper manufacturer in the Midwest. Sounds and, great. Okay, yeah, and so, and so they're, they're hearing about all this. They're saying, okay, well... So the company will get a tax break. How does that affect me, the employee, who's, let's say, making making $50,000 a year? Yeah, well, let's say you're an employee of this company. The reason the company employs you is so they can make profits and so they get an after-tax return on your services. By cutting the tax rate, they increase the after-tax return for your services, so they'll hire more people and they'll pay you more. It's as simple as that. It's just plain incentives. Now, what about those on the on the more uh, Bernie Sanders side of the discussion, Art, who would say that, well, okay, there's a tax cut, but the executives might just want to keep more money on the balance sheet or they want to pay themselves bigger bonuses. What's what's the response to all that? Well, they may want to pay themselves bigger bonuses. I'm sure they do. But the reason they don't keep the money on the side is because they now can make more money by investing and creating more jobs and output. That's as simple as that. If you, if you had a choice of keeping the money or investing it at 50% return per year, what would you do with the money? Yeah. Is yeah. in a checking account? No, I don't think yeah, so. Yeah, if you can make money, you're going to invest money, sure. Of course, and that's what this does. It increases the return on making money. Now, the indi- what about on the individual rate side? So we're speaking to Art Laffer, everybody, former Reagan economic advisor. What can you tell me about that, Art? Well, they don't change the rates on the personal income side very much at all. I mean, they've been debating on that and whether the highest rate comes down a little bit or isn't not. That a little, isn't that a little disappointing, Art? Come on. Well, of course, of course. I'd like to see him go to a true flat tax. Oh, everyone pays yeah. the same tax rate, 12%, and that would collect the same amount of revenues and would create an enormous economy of growth. But unfortunately, these guys aren't well-trained economists, and they're very political, so they never go to the truth, beauty, and the American way. But this is a darn good start. Now, we did it in 1981 and 1986 by cutting the personal income tax rates a lot. Uh, but right now, they're 
personal income tax rates are lower than they were when we were there, and the corporate rate is outrageously high for the world economy. We have the highest corporate tax rate of any country in the OECD. That's 34 countries. And also, we collect our taxes on a global scale rather than territorial. We're the only country that does it on a global scale, and we're the one of only two countries that hasn't cut our tax dramatically in the last 20 years. So, you know, it's our turn to make ourselves competitive and bring jobs back. Art, uh, what, can, do you have some thoughts on the Obamacare component of this, by the way? Cause we I had, love it. I'm sorry? I love it. Yeah, oh, let yeah. me ask you a question. What the Obamacare mandate does is if you choose not to buy, not to buy Obamacare, uh, the ACA health care plan, they tax you. So therefore, you're incentivized to go buy this plan even if you don't want it. Now, removing that mandate, that tax for people who have to pay it because they don't want to buy Obamacare is ridiculous. I mean, it's very anti-competitive. It's very ridiculous, and it's totally unfair. And I don't know why the CBO scores it as a, as a revenue winner, but getting rid of that mandate is the, the plum of the plums. It's, it's fantastic not to force people to buy something they don't want. What's your take on SALT, state and local deductions, and how that factors into all this? state and local deductions should be eliminated. I mean, they really should be. Why should we in Tennessee uh, pay New Yorkers taxes? We shouldn't. But uh, I understand the complaint these people have is here they sit. They sit in this horrible tax state, and uh, they get to least deduct it. But, uh, you know, it shouldn't be deductible, but I think they'll come to a compromise, hopefully something like 50% of the SALT deduction eliminated along with the alternative minimum tax. And that would come out about even for people in very high tax states. I mean, for people listening to this show right now across the country, Art, from shop owners and storekeepers to truck drivers to doctors and teachers and everybody else, if this goes through, are they going to have more money come the end of, uh, what? well, I guess it would be 2018, right? Let me, let me just put it really simply. People who don't have jobs, a lot of people who don't have jobs will get jobs because of this. And a lot of people who do have jobs will get higher paying jobs as a result of this. It's a double whammy winner. Uh, it creates more jobs, and the jobs that are there will get paid more. Now, my view is all these people talk about which group will pay more taxes and which ones won't. Everyone will pay more taxes because they'll make more money. And that's exactly what we want, isn't it, Buck? Yeah. Well, we definitely want to make more money. I mean, I like yeah, your whole flat I, I like your whole flat tax thing. You got me tax goes way up. You got me excited with the whole flat tax conversation, but well, I guess thank you. I did Jerry Brown's flat tax. He was a Democrat obviously in 1992. We almost took Clinton out of the primary uh, in 1992 on a pure flat tax. We got rid of all federal taxes and had two flat taxes, one on personal income and one on uh, business net sales. And you know, we came in second in the Democratic primary. If, if this um, if this corporate tax if he hadn't announced Jesse Jackson as his running mate for right. God's sakes. All right, all right, hold on one second, Art. Hold on, settle down. So if this flat tax does, I'm sorry. If this corporate tax reduction does really well, do you think that that clears the momentum, the political momentum, a little bit for or creates it uh, for there to be more changes to the individual rates down the line, or do you think? Oh yeah, that, what we did is we had the 1981 Tax Act, Kemp Roth. And that passed, that gave us a little bounce to the economy. So by 1986, we passed the big one. We went from 14 tax brackets to two. We cut the corporate rate from 46 to 34%. We cut the personal income tax rate, the highest, from 50% to 28%. We got rid of all these deductions, exemptions, and exclusions. And uh, it only passed the Senate by 97 to 3. 
97 to 3. Only three Democrats held out. Paul Simon from Illinois, uh, Levin from Michigan, and Melchior, I think, from Montana. Uh, all the other left-wing politicians voted for it because they know it's right. Is there a way to make Ron Johnson happy, by the way, in the Senate? He says that oh, yeah, this... they're going to make Ron Johnson happy. He's a wonderful, wonderful man. I know him well. <laughs> and, and, you know, he's a very fine guy. He just I, I didn't mean, I didn't mean that he's unhappy, Art. I just mean, is there a way to deal with his, his uh, objection to this whole situation with the tax plan yeah. where he says that it helps corporations and not so much, what is it, S-Corps? I'm, I, is that what it is? Yeah, you know, it says it's unfair to individual corps pass through corporations. And, you know, I hope he wins and he gets a little... A little morsel there. See, what he's asking for is not bad, by the way. It's really not. Uh, but uh, he'll vote for the bill. I'm sure he will. He's a really clear-headed, fine man, and he'll vote for it. But, but Buck, just seriously, you can't tax an economy into prosperity. That's just stupid. I mean, and, you know, when you look at Obamacare, you can't – a poor person can't spend himself into wealth. It doesn't make any sense. And so what this bill does, if they get rid of the mandate, they get some of the deductions eliminated like they want, and they get that corporate tax rate down, I mean, we're in for a good run of prosperity. And it's really exciting because, you know, I was there the last time it really happened, which was wonder. I voted for both Reagan, obviously, and Clinton. It was a long run of prosperity that was really a great time in America, and we can come back to it again. It's bipartisan, this bill, by the way. I'm shocked that the Democrats have held out. Well, that, that's what I was going to ask you, Art. I mean, it sounds so good. What the heck are the Democrats doing? They hate Trump. And, you know, they can hate Trump all they want, but they shouldn't take it out on the American electorate. That's really wrong. Take it out on Trump. Do whatever the hell you want to do with Trump, but don't deprive America of prosperity because you don't like Trump. That's just not the right thing to do, and that's what they're doing. Now, I'm a Kennedy Democrat, I'm a Clinton Democrat, and I'm a Reagan Republican, so I work with all people who like prosperity and economic growth. And, you know, I just don't understand the Democrat strategy here. It's really obstructionist, and it, it's, it's really hurt, going to hurt the American people. And I, I'm sort of shocked that they're doing this because I know a lot of them, and you know, they're good people, but they've just got this froth on for Trump, Trump, and I, I just yeah. Don't so it's ha- it's hashtag resistance over over hashtag growth. All right, Art Laffer, everybody, former Reagan economic advisor, and uh, Art, we really appreciate your enthusiasm today. Thank you so much for calling in. Hey, my pleasure, Buck. Thank you. He's uh, he, he, no one will ever accuse Art of being low energy. That guy's he's got fire in the belly for econ. You know, be great. That's one problem with like econ in college and some of the econ that I've done in the past is you get a lot of people that are you know. Bueller, Bueller, you know, it's not supply-demand curves, Bueller. Our laughers like, I mean, it's going to be amazing. Taxes. It was pretty cool. He's, he's got a lot of, oh, look, hey, I like it. I like enthusiasm. I hope he's right, by the way, but he, he had me at flat tax. He had me at flat tax. I didn't know that he was a flat tax guy. That makes sense. It'd be so much better. Think about that. What did you make this year? Multiply it by this number or whatever the flat tax is. Send, send a check to the Treasury for that. Forever. No more withholding, no more out of any of this. Just what'd you make this year? 15%, 12%, whatever it is. Send that in. No more nonsense, no more games. But the political influence that DC would lose if they did that, meaning the, the ability to dole out favors and the role that that plays in the current power structure in DC. Because the, fa- the, the, the tax code is 70,000 pages, everybody, because it 
allows there to be all these hidden giveaways and it turns into a grab bag of government favors or they're, they're up for grabs. And, you know, you, you can you can take a swing at the pinata, so to speak, but you got to pay to play. So that's what ends up happening. The, the, the donor class and you get all these. There's no other reason the tax code to be 70,000. That's insane. 70,000 pages is crazy. So anyway, we'll see. We'll see if they get this through. But but as I was saying, if the Senate doesn't do this, they are they are worthless. We're going to have to we're going to have to get the two bobs to show up and ask, what would you say you do here? Because they don't do anything. We'll be right back. I want to thank the jury, 12 New Jerseyans who saw through the government's false claims and used their Jersey common sense to reject it. I appreciate their service. I appreciate their sacrifice and their time away from their family and their professions. Senator Menendez escapes this time around. He is uh, still a free man for the foreseeable future. Senator Bob Menendez's trial has ended today in a mistrial. The jury was deadlocked. Now, keep in mind, it's very interesting how this goes. And it also reminds you that you never you really never want to be <laughs> you never want to be in a situation where you're uh, judged by a jury of your peers because who knows what that's going to be like. Uh, that means that there were some people that thought that Menendez was guilty, guilty, guilty. And there are other people who were like, no, no, no. Which I should note, and I look, I understand the whole jury process, and it's I'd, I'd rather, although you can request a bench trial, everybody, just so you know, you could ask just for a judge. Uh, but it depends on the situation. Uh but it just goes to show you that, you know, we, we've, got a, we've got a really good justice system in this country compared to other ones. But there's also a big luck of the draw situation here. Anytime you go with the jury, it's like really just their opinions, man. I mean, that's what it ends up turning into. Whether you, go free, whether you are locked up in a cell with bars or not, could be one or two people who like kind of like you or kind of don't. You know, that, that's what it really comes, you know, because you might have a jury that's going to go one way or going to go the other. It has to be unanimous verdict. And uh, yeah, in this case, I, I think they're going to uh, I think they're going to retry this, although who knows, as has been pointed out. Now it means this could this could have really big political implications. I just imagine for a second that because of this, this is almost like, uh, you know, chaos theory butterfly effect stuff right flaps its wings in in central park and you get a hurricane in shanghai or whatever that's what people you know small effects with long term with small effects with long uh uh, long applications uh, afterwards so here you have because a couple of people because a couple citizens of the great state of new jersey where tyrone is a resident uh, and a homeowner by the way which Salt, as we were discussing, that's not going to be fun. If that, yeah, no more, no more, uh, no more pulling away the uh, or uh, reducing the uh, taxes that Ty pays because of being a homeowner in New Jersey. I am, uh, I am not nearly uh, well enough situated to be a homeowner here in New York, so I don't have to worry about that part of it. But it does mean that I have to, I don't get to write off my New York City taxes anyway. Um, but a few people in the Menendez trial, or a few people on the jury, are the difference between Menendez going to prison or not. Which means now that Menendez, even if he's retried, it won't 
put him in a possible prison situation or free him. He may be he may be found not guilty uh, before Chris Christie's replacement, who's a Democrat, takes over, which means that you will have a uh, you would have a Senate seat that would go to a Democrat now if, in fact, Menendez was found guilty. Whereas before you might have had an interim appointment, a special election, you know, would have changed up the game a bit. If this had been a guilty verdict and it is at least conceivable. Remember, I told you about the whole Ted Stevens situation from Alaska. And then he lost that. He lost that reelection bid after those trumped up charges uh, from federal prosecutors. It is conceivable that whether Obamacare stays or goes, whether name your major legislative uh, legislative agenda item for the Trump administration. It is conceivable that one vote may well be the difference. And in a sense, you could trace it all the way back. It depends on what happens in the midterms and everything else I know, but you could trace it all back to what a few what a few everyday folks in New Jersey thought about this senator who was trying to do favors on behalf of a convicted felon who was his buddy. Convicted felon involved in a $90 million Medicare fraud. But because New Jersey is the state Bob Menendez technically represents and Melgin, the ophthalmologist extraordinaire, $90 million fraud guy, because he's a Florida resident, they're saying, well, you know, they were just buddies. He wasn't technically his senator, therefore buying off the senator with favors and cash and all kinds of gifts and stuff. That's not really corruption. I will say... um, we're getting a point now between the Clinton Foundation and Bob Menendez. Unless you get caught on video taking a bag, uh, paper bag full of money and saying, I will vote as you tell me to because of this. I don't know if you can go to jail for corruption. I, I, I think the bar, unless you sell, say a Senate seat is a valuable thing. You want to sell it. You can't go away. In Alaska on KENI. What's up, John? my thunder I was going to talk about Ted Stevens the uh. the R- judge Roy Moore debacle and what happened to Ted Stevens is almost it's from the same democratic playbook uh, Bill Allen from Vico was bringing up young girls underage trying to get Ted Stevens involved in something he later got a deal with Ted Stevens had sold his house but he still had a cabin in Alieska, and he wanted it lifted up. You could, two forklifts could have lifted up the little A-frame. Uh, you, you could use uh, Handyman Jackson lift up the little A-frame. And Bill Allen charged him $380,000, I believe it was. And then he got charged with, oh, this was a six $700,000 job, got indicted. Every Republican came out and said, don't vote for Ted Stevens, vote for Mark Baggage. We can't have a crook like this in Senate. He lost his campaign money, and he lost the election, but only by a few hundred points. A few hundred, I mean, a few hundred uh, votes. And um, afterwards, he was able to prove the whole thing was phony. Well, and the feds, knew, the feds knew with Ted Stevens, and that's why a federal prosecutor committed suicide, because of the Correct. clear malfeasance. Correct. He knew he was it, caught. Correct. Oh, there, there's so much more to it than that. A friend of mine. And, but, you know, I don't mean to interrupt you, John, but just, you know, en- enough Americans don't know this story. That it was, a, politi- it was a political hit and a successful one on Ted Stevens. 
Yes, it was. It was incredible. Um, the Democratic, uh, well, the Republicans pulled all this funding. Uh, I, I believe even John McCain did an ad or at least talked about, you can't vote for a crook like that. Can, can I, let me, I want to ask you a question, John. Okay. And, and I have an answer. Who is the John McCain of the Democrat Party? As in, you will notice there is no prominent Democrat who can get on every cable news show, can get you know an editorial in any newspaper in the country, because that prominent Democrat is always willing to be the first to criticize fellow Democrats. That's right. You know, it's a very you, important distinction. There is no John McCain equivalent in the Democrat no, Party. Not at all. Not at all. And uh, Stevens had finally... See, I, I knew the Stevens family. I'd, I'd seen the little, little tiny... Um, A-frame he had in Girdwood. He was just going to live in Girdwood. His kids were gone. He didn't need a big house by the inlet. And, and, and he was one of the few Republicans that didn't have, well, Republicans or Democrats, that didn't have money. He was just living off his salary. He didn't have all these big kickback things and all this. So he had sold his home, you know, and prior to prioritize his expenses. And Bill Allen screwed him. Yeah, they, they, they fed, federally prosecuted him, and they railroaded him. They, railroaded, they, they had exculpatory evidence. They hid it from the defense. Doesn't really get much more unethical than that from a prosecutor's perspective. It was a disgrace, and oh, by the way, because of it, we have Obamacare now. Right. Seemingly, every contractor in Anchorage was called by people from the prosecution, and they couldn't find anyone to come up with this high price that Bill Allen really had charged him. Bill Allen actually overcharged him. $300,000. All right, John, but thank yeah, you for they, calling in with the okay. with the details from what happened up there in Alaska. But yeah, the Ted Stevens case. You'll, you'll notice a pattern here, everybody. Ted Stevens. Oh, wait, wait, before I get into that, my favorite politician, my political analyst, gurgling with gurgling. He's on CNN right now. Nixon and Reagan, Carter, Nixon... Um, White House, uh, Reagan, Carter, Nixon. Uh, he, he's on CNN, right? Hey, you don't have to listen because I'm I'm telling you what he's saying right now. This is very this is important. This bipartisan consensus. Nixon, Carter, Reagan. Or uh, anyway, you can turn it on and see it for yourself. If you don't, though, because you're listening to me on the radio. But he's on he's on the air right now, gurgling with gurgling. You can hear it. Um. So anyway. Uh, where was I? Oh yes, Ted Stevens. You'll notice that with uh, with Ted Stevens, he's a Republican, and they went after him, and they uh, they lied about his. Well, they they railroaded him. The prosecution. I mean, this is this is fact. This isn't my opinion. You'll also notice that the, one of the reasons that Menendez is probably walking free right now is because the Supreme Court adjusted the bar for corruption. Because in order to prosecute Sen- uh, uh, Governor Bob McDonnell of Virginia, former Governor Bob McDonnell of Virginia, federal prosecutors had so substantially lowered the bar that they were also, remember this everyone, wanting to throw his wife in prison because she accepted gifts from someone that she claimed was a friend of the family and a friend of her husband. So she got gifts. She's not even an official anything. She does no official. There is no quid pro quo from her, right? And she was prosecuted under. I, I don't even. I don't even know how that's really possible. I, mean, I know that there's this commingling of assets and you know, husband and wife and all this. I know that the 
you know, that he could be held responsible for it, right? So if you give the wife uh, a check for fifty thousand, you know, or you give the wife a, uh, I think he, she got like a fifteen thousand dollar Rolex or something like that, or maybe he got it. I forget. Whatever. Let's say you give the wife a fifteen thousand dollar necklace, and the husband then all of a sudden takes an official act on behalf of that gift giver. You know, he's responsible for that quid pro quo. But she's responsible for it. You know, she's not the official. She's going to get thrown in prison for it. Yeah, the answer was yes. They were sending the wife. They wanted eleven years. McDonnell was guilty of at most, I think, it was one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in gifts over his whole tenure as governor. That's you know, by by Clinton standards, you know, you know what one hundred fifty thousand dollars gets you? What? Not even what happened. Just what? Because she won't finish the sentence because it's not worth it to her. So, you know, here we are looking at a series of prosecutions that, you know, you'll notice the overreach, the politicization of the prosecutor's office. It always happens against a Republican. When Democrats do corruption, it's Blagojevich. When Democrats do corruption, it's like, oh, yeah, I just found this uh, duffel bag with like $100,000 in cash in it. And all of a sudden... You know, that union that uh, was lobbying me to do something for him, I did it the next day. But, you know, the and I'm on video and there's $100,000 and, you know, it has to be Blagojevich level corruption. You know, I'd like to, I'd like to sell that Senate seat that I have. Uh, so anyway, you know, it's it's amazing as you watch this happen. I mean, the, I know that hypocrisy, it's so commonplace on the left and the Democrats that it almost gets tiring to talk about. But. It's necessary because this is the world. This is the world that we're living in. And with Menendez. Oh, by the way, Menendez. Also, this was fun. You remember this? Menendez just manages by the skin of his teeth to avoid, you know, sharing a, a cell with a a large, scary individual. I'm sure. Although, no, not really. Yeah, I know. People at Tyrone. I know. People always say stuff like that. Like, oh, you're going to be in a cell with a 350 pound guy named Bubba. First of all, as a guy named Buck, you know, why is a guy always going to be named Bubba? You know what I mean? Buck feels very close to Bubba, and you know I would be a fan. I would be a fan. I've always been a great roommate, so I think this is a little unfair. Uh, I'm very, very respectful, very responsible. But yeah, I mean these guys, the guys, the federal, they go to like the uh, the federal penitentiary, and they're in the low security thing and everything else. Yeah, you know exactly. Come on, and everyone's like, oh, it's gonna be. And and they make all these jokes about how he's gonna be you know have to like you know punch out a member of the Aryan Nation or something to you know set that no I don't think Menendez is gonna go to that kind of he's not gonna go to that wing of the prison at least uh, he'll be in the part where you get you know visits and everything but he's look it looks like he might not even go it looks like he might not even go to prison at all um, that's uh, that's the standard that we are under right now we will have to see. Um, what was I talking about before at the prison? I forget now. I got I got sidetracked thinking about. Oh, thank you. Yes. <laughs> so he just barely avoids prison. Thank you, Tyrone. And then he comes out and says this. To those who were digging my political grave so that they could jump into my seat, I know who you are, and I won't forget you. Whoa. He is he is given the evil eye. To everybody out there who was like, you know, I think he's toast. I think I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna be able to maneuver politically, uh, assuming that he's out of the game now. He's like, I'm not out of the game. You know, if you come at Menendez, you best, you best not miss. Apparently, because he is, uh, 
he, he is going to be out on the on the warpath. Whew. Okay, we'll see. We'll see what that means. That was quite. That's an ominous thing to say when you've just barely avoided uh, getting some substantial prison time yourself. But there, there you have it. Menendez avoids avoids prison, and we will see. We'll see where all this goes. Uh, we'll have a, we'll we'll talk just briefly here some updates on the Moore situation coming up. I don't have a lot on it, and then uh, we'll talk about Hillary being upset over Uranium One. Uh, Gordon Chang will join to talk about Trump's East Asia trip. And also, uh, we'll get into some more of the sexual harassment allegations that have come out. Because there are even more. I think I'll talk to you about Zimbabwe, where there's been a coup to get rid of Mugabe. I think we'll do that tomorrow. Because I want to tell you, it's fascinating. You know, just the whole Mugabe-Zimbabwe situation. Fascinating. Doesn't get nearly enough attention. It's really a case study in... I mean, how bad can corruption, how bad can corruption really get? Zimbabwe is like number, number one here. Zimbabwe is, uh, uh, Zimbabwe is probably, if you're looking for just pure corruption, I mean, North Korea in terms of authoritarianism and, and lack of freedom and everything else is, is in a class by itself. But if you're looking for like self-dealing, emptying out bank accounts and everything, and just, Zimbabwe is pretty, pretty special in that regard. We'll be right back. Look, the president believes that these allegations are very troubling uh, and should be taken seriously. And he thinks that the people of Alabama should make the decision on who their next senator should be. So that's a no. He thinks Roy Moore should stay in. Look, the president said uh, in his statement earlier uh, this week that if the allegations are true, then that Roy Moore should step aside. He still firmly believes that. So everyone's been wondering, you know, when is Trump, uh, who is clearly not shy about sharing his feelings on pretty much anything, when is Trump going to weigh in on the Roy Moore situation? And once again, the the administration has taken the position that was Sarah Huckabee Sanders that th- this is now this is now an issue that the people of Alabama will decide. You know, I, I will say that in a in a sense there is a. Uh, there's a situation that will come up sometimes in the courts where they'll say it's a political question, as in the courts aren't going to decide this. The political process is meant to decide this. And now that's usually that's usually on, on issues that are very, very different from what we're talking about here. But it is a notion that exists, right, that the courts will say, look, this is not it's not now activist judges won't say this. But but some courts will say some judges, some justices will say that this isn't for me to decide or us as a panel of, of judges to decide this is for the American people through the political process to decide. And that unless Judge Moore, you know, unless either information comes out where there's no more, you know, there's a photo, for example, right? Without Franken, there's a photo. And to be fair, the more accusations are substantially more serious than the Franken admitted stuff, Right. But one or one is a series of accusations. The other is admitted. So these are different. These are different things. And uh, you had Judge Moore come out again today and say that this is just completely he's he's dug in. Absolutely. Says it's completely bogus. As you know, the Washington Post has brought some scurrilous, false charges, not charges, allegations, which I have emphatically denied time and time again. They're not only untrue, but they have no evidence to support them. Two of the speakers up here said words that I caught. One said unsubstantiated, and another said unproved. 
So Moore is, is saying absolutely not. Now, there are really two levels of analysis here. And I've been trying to I've been trying to keep to those two levels as we've as we worked through this together. And I've appreciated so much, especially I mean, look, it's a, it's a great advantage of this show that I have such a, a brilliant audience uh, of such ethical and and uh, considerate patriots uh, and in, including a substantial substantial crew of you in the state of Alabama. Right. So it's great that I can say, OK, what do you what do you guys think? And I'm bam, bam, bam. All these calls coming in from from Alabama. And I very much you've you've enriched the conversation as well as everybody else who's been calling and share their thoughts. But I think particularly for those in Alabama, they realize that they're, they're going to be casting a vote here. I mean, assuming unless something changes, unless more drops out, they're going to be casting a vote here and they will be. Each each voter, each each voter in Alabama will be passing judgment one way or another on on Judge Moore. And we will see how that process plays out. Um, and, and that will be I should know that when the Benghazi thing happened, I was saying very early on. And I know that's again, these are very different situations, but just the notion of political accountability in place of legal accountability is what I'm trying to get to. There's no legal process here for Judge Moore. There's no legal accountability that can happen. He will neither be prosecuted nor can he prove his innocence through the courts, right? So that's just not in play here. That's not happening. With Benghazi, I also said to people, understand that the Obama administration knew that if they could just avoid the public recognition of the full scope and scale of their failures and their dereliction the Obama officials and Hillary Clinton's dereliction of duty during Benghazi. Then because if, if Obama was reelected, it wasn't going to matter what came out of the hearings because being an incompetent senior government official is not illegal. Being, uh, you know, being co- complacent and, and uh, again, not doing your job. That is a political issue. That's vote. That's vote them out. That's not going to be much more than that. And here with Judge Moore. It's going to be a question of politics. That's all that there is. There will be no legal process here. And so the people of Alabama will be deciding. Just, in a, just as, as another thing uh, I wanted to throw in here before we uh, move on to some other stuff. Um, CNN's Jim Acosta, who has really become the – he's become kind of the, the, the pinnacle or the, the epitome of – I'm a journalist, but hey, I hate Trump and I'm actually a partisan Democrat. Like he's really typified. He's just great with this now. He's like, no, no, I'm I'm a journalist and I'm I like to sound very serious during my segments. Uh, but I actually sounded kind of like Jim Acosta. I'm not going to lie. That was, that was pretty. You know what I mean? You know, because it's not like a lot of. OK, they're like buck stop thinking you're do such good impersonation. Uh, but no, I mean, it's not a little bit like it. So says so says I It's better than my Hillary impersonation. So, but Jim Acosta likes to take himself very, very seriously and, and wants to be taken seriously as a journalist, but then will be all about the hashtag resistance and making a scene in these. And look, he's just putting on theater in these White House press conferences. But that is what he is doing. And then he goes out there and asks in a White House press press conference, ask the following question. The president uh, campaign with Roy Moore. Not that I'm aware of. And can I ask you a follow Um do you think he's a creep? Do I? Yeah. Uh, look, I don't know Roy Moore. I haven't met him in person, so I wouldn't be able to respond to that. You know, how is how is that an appropriate question? Do you think he's a creep? You're asking the White House press secretary that. I mean, look, it's a free country. He's a reporter. I'm not saying he can't ask this or that the someone, oh, there should be. 
But, you know, really? You know, is is he a creep? You're going to ask the White House press secretary that. Um, you know, do you, let's just play the game out for a second here or play play this out for a moment. Did any of these reporters, you know, did they ever ask if Bill Clinton was it was a creep in a White House press conference? Did they ever do that? I'm going to I'm going to guess no. And some of them have been around for quite a long time, so they could have. Would they ever use that term to describe Bill Clinton in a formal setting like a White House press briefing now? Yeah, well, you know, Bill Clinton's a creep. So do you think Roy Moore is also a creep? You'll notice that that won't happen. There is a, a very clear uh, lack of respect that reporters, CNN and elsewhere, have for this administration, for the people who work for it. And uh, on the on the Judge Moore situation, you're just seeing once again that not only do they have you know, look if they if they think the judge Moore is guilty and they really believe that and therefore they you know they think he's a terrible guy they're entitled to that belief by all means I know a lot of people think that but people who are trying to be fair to the situation aren't part of the problem and that's a leap that the media people like Jim Acosta that's the insinuation he's trying to make about or by asking Sarah Huckabee Sanders a question it's like well just because you won't agree with me on this you know you're bad too. It's like you're defending more. It's not true. I, I'll be honest with you. I hadn't heard of this phenomenon until recently when there were some articles that came out on it. And it is, when you first think about it, it's bizarre, but then starts to make a little more sense. And it is something called self cyberbullying. This is, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's out there now. It is now estimated that of children 12 to 17 years of age, uh, so basically teenagers, um, 6% of them, according to this piece on USA Today, have engaged in self-cyberbullying. And you're like, what is that? Why would someone target themselves for bullying online? It seems so bizarre. Well, it's because in our culture of victimology, which is growing all the time. There's actually a lot of uh, gratification and even power that can come from victimhood. Young people especially and see it as a means of getting sympathy, of getting attention, and so they are doing this now in larger and larger numbers. They are creating entire, I mean, elaborate fake campaigns of bullying oneself online. I mean, they estimated 6% of all kids in this country. That's a lot. You think about what the, what the overall numbers are we're talking about here. Um, and this just also goes to how difficult it is going to be going forward to engage in all this internet policing that there seems to be a, a real surge in recently. It's going to affect everything in this country in terms of our political discussions and the way we interact with each other. And, you know, Twitter recently has gone through this removal of, you know, I have a blue check mark on Twitter and on Facebook. So I'm a verified person. This was something that started out just so that you knew if somebody was real in, in the media, right? So there wouldn't be, because early on, in the earlier days of Twitter, when it was more like the Wild West, uh, and and it was it was even in many ways more of a sewer then than it is now. Uh, you'd have people that were like, you know, it was real Donald Trump, and it would be R E A L L Donald Trump, 
And if you weren't paying attention, you're like, Donald Trump is following me on Twitter. You know, it was it was really easy. You know, you'd be like, oh, wow. Hello, Mr. Trump. Well, hello. You know, a lot of that. Uh, and, and Twitter was particularly bad when it comes to that. And, you know, now uh, they're trying to. Well, then they went through this whole process of the verification badges. Now they have started to pull them away from people so that people are losing their blue checkmark status. And there are at least accusations out there that Twitter, which is now much more of a Twitter is much more in the zeitgeist now for our national conversation than it was before because of President Trump. But with the removal of these blue badges now, it's going to be politicized. And all the Facebook terms of service and all this stuff, there are clearly openings for abuse here. And you're going to see more of this uh, where there are going to be decisions that are made based upon uh, based upon clearly politicized categorizations of what is and is not acceptable online. It's already happened with Facebook groups and everything else, but also People are going to be making up, they're making up, they're going to make fraudulent abuse to try to get those that they disagree with in trouble. That's definitely going to be, I mean, I'm sure it's already happened a lot, but that's going to be happening more and more. And they're going to engage in fraudulent self-abuse, I guess that's what we'd call it, uh, where they're just wanting to play the, literally wanting to play the victim very publicly. Oh, you know, like, look at this, this person said, this person said that like, I wear smelly old boat shoes and I've had the same haircut since 1985 and that I only like to wear sweatpants around town and it makes me sad. Like, yeah, those are all true things about me. But, you know, if I wrote all that about myself and then pretended it was somebody else, that would be a very strange thing to do. I also don't know how much sympathy I would get. Some of you would say maybe you shouldn't have the same hairstyle for 30 years or so. But you know what? Works for me. It's also, it really is just kind of naturally, the helmet is just there no matter what. You know, the helmet is, it is affixed one way or the other. I always love when, uh, you know, some of the, uh, I was over at Fox today and the, the hair and makeup people who are just o- always like one of the, one of the, the uh, more pleasant parts of the day is when you got to go into hair and makeup. It's just nice. You get to talk to the hair and makeup artists and, you know, they're very, this is a part of TV that you don't see, but everyone, if you don't do it as a guy, though, I should note, you go on TV and you look like you're somebody from The Walking Dead. So there's no choice. You got to you got to let them do what they what they want to do uh, or else for someone like me, I look like a, you know, a, sh- a shiny, sweaty mess. But they're like, you know, oh, your hair is so thick. And I'm like, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, they're always like, oh, it's so it's so thick. I love your hair. Um, that's my like generic person doing hair. And make. I don't know why that was what came to mind, but uh what am I even? What am I even talking? Oh yeah, I want cyberbullying. Sorry. So people, this is part of <laughs> guys. I've gotten way off the rails here. Sorry. Uh, this is part of our culture of victimology that people want to be. They understand that if you want to be uh, held up as some kind of a hero in progressive and millennial circles, you actually have to be a victim. And so people are turning themselves into online victims in larger and larger numbers in the hopes of getting their share of the sympathy, the attention, and yes, even the moral authority and the power that one gets from being a victim. So online self-bullying is skyrocketing these days. What a weird and crazy time we live in. Uh, All right, we're going to talk to uh, Inez Felcher coming up here about 
uh, some sexual harassment stuff in the Pence rule. Stay with me for that. The Pence rule. It's actually better known as the Graham rule, and it, it is what some uh, men, Christian men, choose to do in terms of their professional conduct. that They will not meet or travel alone with a woman, with a person of the opposite sex, because of the possibility of the optics and also the temptation involved in this. Uh, this is one way to go, and yet, given all the stuff we have seen, I read a piece in the New York Times, a Christian case, this was just earlier today, a Christian case against the Pence rule. We have Inez... Felcher Stepman with us. She's a senior contributor at The Federalist, and she's got some thoughts that she's going to share with us on this piece. Inez, great to have you. Thanks for having me, Buck. Okay, so first, walk us through the argument before you dismantle it. What is the case that this author, Caitlin Beatty, is making about how Christian uh, that there's a Christian case against the Pence rule? Right, and, and some of the things that she writes are quite reasonable. I, I think she wants to distinguish between a typical business meeting um, and meeting late night for drinks. I think that's perfectly reasonable. I don't think that every single person has to follow the Pence rule to a T. I think it might make sense if you're a powerful man like Mike Pence and maybe make less sense if, um, for more of the rest of us. Um, but I, I think she's wrong to connect. And then she kind of goes into this leftist argument, which is because men like um, the Grams or, or Mike Pence do this, that they do this because they can't help themselves. If they were alone in a, uh, in a room with a woman, oh, no, they might assault her. Um, and it's sort of this leftist idea that, oh, we just have to teach men not to prey on women. Um, and, and so I, I think, one, that misunderstands the Pence rule, right? The Pence rule isn't about him being afraid that he might jump on a woman. It's merely being in her presence. Um, it, it's about perception, one, and two, about, um, you know, respecting his wife and respecting the idea that men and women are different. You put them into sort of close and intimate situations with each other, um, and attractions will happen. Now, it doesn't mean that um, men are predators. It just means this is natural, and maybe it would make sense, given all of this rash of horrible behavior that's coming out from a whole host of people, to put a, a few more guardrails, societal guardrails, around men and women's interactions with each other in the workplace. I had a, a green room discussion with some friends of mine, uh, people that, that you would know too, in, as, uh, in the media space, but I just uh, we were talking about some things, and somehow the Pence Rule, this was a few weeks ago, Pence Rule came up, and I said, look, e even I try to adhere to some version of this, especially as I am older and wiser now. Um, and, and I've gone through this with uh, young women in the past that, that I've dated, where I, I've said to them, look, I don't care what the professional setting is. You never need to have more than two drinks. And anybody who's trying to make you have more than two drinks is, first of all, no one should ever make, you know, pressure somebody to drink anything. But I, I, I've heard many times, oh, I, I want to get along. I don't want people to think that I'm no fun and all this stuff. That's to me, that's a red flag when colleagues around, a, particularly around a woman, you know, who is unmarried in her 20s or 30s or 40s, whatever. Um, but an unmarried woman tr pushing her to drink more at a work event, I, I think that sends a weird message right off the bat. Yeah, well, I think if we had more societal guardrails, people would immediately get that message. But because the larger culture is so, you know, dialed up to 11 on sexual libertinism, um, it, it can seem really ridiculous to people. They're like, oh, I can't go out and drink with my colleagues. I can't do... It's, it's not about those hard and fast rules. It's about, hey... Maybe it would be a lot easier for all of us to recognize what's inappropriate and what isn't if it weren't common 
to take more than two shots with their colleagues um, after work. If it weren't uh, a normal thing for a Hollywood producer to invite young starlets to his hotel room to read a script, right? If those things were not considered so normal in the larger culture, um, it would be a lot easier for women and men, frankly, to navigate relationships with each other in the workplace and then know immediately, hey, this sounds kind of inappropriate. I mean, I don't think it's that easy in the media space. I have definitely, when I was uh, single, uh, Mary now, but when I was single, I definitely went to lunch with men that I thought were professional lunches. And then, like, I somehow got the message halfway through, hey, this is not a professional lunch. This is a date. And this has happened to a lot of women. And, and it, those men were, were absolutely upstanding, you know, moral human beings and nothing funny happened. But I do think in the larger culture now, it's really... The rules are not clear, and what's appropriate and inappropriate is not at all clear the way that feminists pretend it should be. And, and the way that they pretend it is that, oh, we should just basically make everyone sexless automatons in the office, and then out of the office, everybody's, uh, you know, a liberated, um, you know, sort of somebody who is ready to, to have casual sex at the drop of a hat. I think that's unrealistic, given human nature. I also was speaking to a, a business owner earlier this week who told me, that uh, that he he had he had heard of a of a friend's company, and so now I know this is like a game of telephone. It's like a, a friend of mine's friend, but where where a woman was complaining about uh, about a a hostile workplace environment, and the the story that I was told is that it's not that anybody had done anything that was particularly egregious. It's just that so many of the guys in the office had asked her out on dates, not repeatedly, just different guys had asked her out, that she felt uncomfortable in her office because basically all the single guys wanted to date her because she was single. <laughs> and I feel like, I mean, I, you know, it's kind of a high-class problem. Like, I don't know if that's... <laughs> I don't know if that's a hostile environment. It just feels like everybody, you know, likes you. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Yeah, I, I, there was this other lady um, whose tweet went viral who said that, you know, um, she said that she was hashtag me too because a TSA agent had asked her for her number when she was flying, right? Um, I actually wrote a piece about this in the Federalist a couple weeks back before the worst of the Roy Moore accusations came out. I said, we really need to reserve this for actual predatory behavior, Awkward come-ons are not a big deal. You should, as a strong woman, be able to say, no, I'm not interested, right? Um, and, and it's really muddying the waters. And I think it makes it harder for women who are actually victims of, of predatory behavior um, or worse than predatory behavior uh, to come forward because there's a certain segment of the population that just won't believe them uh, because they think, oh, it was actually a much more minor incident. It was somebody wolf-whistling them on the sidewalk. It was a guy that she didn't find attractive asking her out, you know. Um, and, and there are women who have, have written those kinds of stories with that hashtag, me too. Um, and I really think that that's, that's doing a disservice to the women who have actually dealt with serious sexual harassment, with whether in the workplace or out of it, or even worse, you know, sexual assault or rape. Look, I've been, I've been catcalled and, you know, had weird things happen to me on the streets of New York and D.C. that, that almost every woman experiences. I forget about those things half an hour later because that's, you know, you have to deal with jerks. That's that's part of life, right? Uh, if you if you try to elevate dealing with the occasional jerk to being the victim of some kind of sexual harassment, um, it really does uh, cheapen the experiences of actual victims. We're speaking to Inez Felcher Stepman. She's a senior contributor at the Federalist. You can read her latest at thefederalist.com. Uh, Inez, it started to. Uh, it started to break, uh, given that Al Franken is getting so many headlines. 
that there's some stuff going on in D.C. or people in D.C., elected officials uh, in the inside the Beltway on Capitol Hill. Uh, they may have been up to some shenanigans and some uh, sexual misbehavior, too. Uh, we know there's $15 million of settlements that have paid, been paid out over the last 10 years. I feel like the dam is cracking here on the D.C. sexual harassment stories, kind of like the way in Hollywood that's happened. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely something going on with um, these industries where you have very powerful men and then, um, you know, a lot of young women in the industry. Uh, I think Hollywood is the worst, the stereotypical casting couch. I think any time there's, uh, you know, a really powerful gatekeeper, um, that is selecting young women for a position that's really desirable. There's going to be that kind of dynamic. There's going to be opportunity um, to do some really horrible things to take advantage of the situation. I do think that some of these industries could do a better job of understanding. I do, I do think this comes back to human nature, right? Understanding that, that there will be a natural um, dynamic there that could be dangerous. And to then go ahead and put in rules in place, like, you know, having a good reporting system um, or always having a third person in the room. Uh, I, I, I got to say, you know, just, just, just as an aside, Inez, I was I had to uh, get called in as a witness. And my whole office did once in, in government because of a, a sexual harassment claim. And all I can say is that it was. It, it was like inappropriate, but pretty minor stuff. We were talking, you know, that was that was involved here. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, right? It was it was nothing yeah. illegal. It was just it was like inappropriate office commentary and discussions, and it was taken with extreme seriousness. And the moment that the federal government is involved, the possibility of very large settlements because of the federal government's effectively <laughs> uh, endless pockets. Uh, it just elevates the whole thing. So in, in a sense, I will say that my experience in the government was that like if, if somebody said so-and-so said something and it, re- it legitimately was inappropriate and bad, it was like DEFCON too. I mean, it, it was a big deal. <laughs> yeah, no, I, and I also think there's a lot of large private companies like that. I, I think uh, generally in business, this kind of stuff is treated really, really seriously. I do think the closer you get to industries where uh, you're basically hiring people for their looks, uh, that can get really, really shaky, right? Because part of what you're hiring people to do is to look good. Um, and so I think that introduces a whole different dynamic in Hollywood to some extent in media and television. Um, and then I, I don't know so much about the, um, the political sphere. I think in the regular kind of um, bureaucratic side of government, probably not so much. But when you're talking about a, a very powerful senator having 22-year-old interns in and out of his office all the time, yeah, I think maybe um, maybe we could stand a few more guardrails around that. Inez Felcher-Stepman, senior contributor at The Federalist. Go to thefederalist.com and follow her at Inez Felcher on Twitter. Inez, great to have you. Thank you so much, Buck. Um, all right, team, we are going to roll into a break here, and we will be right back. Stay with me. Oh, gosh, I just saw this. Oh, man. Ugh. Uh, you know, I, I, I forgot. I mean, this popped up in my feed before, but here we are. Sylvester Stallone now. Sylvester Stallone accused. This is on, the, this is on Drudge Report, Daily Mail. Uh, oh, man. Sylvester Stallone accused of sexually assaulting 16-year-old fan A. Now, this was uh, some, some decades ago. I think it's back in the 80s and the 90s. But the claim is is that he threatened physical force 
against a uh, 16-year-old uh, 16-year-old girl in in Nevada, Nevada and made the girl under threat of force perform sex acts on him and on his bodyguard. I believe the bodyguard passed away. Uh, so I don't believe the bodyguard is right. The bodyguard, I think it died a few years ago. Yeah. So, I mean that he's not around to defend himself or to take any blame one way or the other. Right. Uh, but the Sylvester Stallone accusation, man. Now I will say Stallone completely denies it, says that it never happened. And this is getting so tough uh, because I've I've been telling you for a while that you're going to start to see because it's so it's such a potent accusation right now that you're going to see this abused. And I don't know, you know, I I don't know when that will happen. I don't know how often, but you will see this uh, abuse. Stallone says it absolutely never happened. He says this is a total he says, quote, this is a ridiculous, categorically false story. No one was ever made aware of this story until it was published today, including Mr. Stallone. This is from a spokeswoman. At no time was Mr. Stallone ever contacted by authorities or anyone else regarding this matter. Uh, the girl, according to TMZ here, did not want to press charges because she was scared and humiliated and reportedly signed a no prosecution form. But Stallone's people are adamant that it never happened. You know, you, you have you have two Two situations right now that are happening simultaneously. On the one hand, you have the opening of the floodgates to accusations, and in a lot of cases, to truth about sexual uh, sexual assault, sexual misconduct of, of all kinds. On the other hand, you have a situation where if somebody wanted to, for whatever reason, get even with somebody or make a just, you know, ruin somebody's life, ruin their career. Now is the best time that certainly in my lifetime to level this kind of accusation if it is a false accusation. So it's very tough to know what uh, what we're facing here with each one. You have well, you have to evaluate each one individually. You have to evaluate each one on the merits. And then you start getting into man. I was just watching like Rambo a couple weeks ago. Look, maybe Stallone's totally innocent of this. I mean, this is there's no corroborating evidence that I know of. I might have missed something, uh, but there's no corroborating evidence. It's just a an accusation, I believe, right now. Um, that's uh, oh no, I'm sorry. There is a police report according to Daily Mail. There that she did file a police report at the time. Okay, so there is some corroborating evidence. Huh? You know, you, you just. You really do have this feeling of who who's left, who's not gonna. Which public figure, you know, can you can you be absolutely certain is not gonna have some terrible story come out? Uh, you know, male public figure is gonna have some terrible story come out like this. It's just, man, it is rough. And I don't know what the laws are in Nevada. Um, I'm I don't see anything in here about uh, cons- the age of consent being a. Uh, higher than 16 it is in some states uh, like california it's 18 i nevada i'm guessing because i didn't see this in the piece i'm guessing it's 16 so that's not the issue but obviously the the threat of force for a sex act is is sexual sexual assault it's rape and in new york uh, for example if there is any threat of force then it becomes a felony uh an a felony i think rape or whatever the highest level felony is i forget how it works here in the city uh, and there is no statute of limitations on that rape via force in New York state. It, there's no statute. I don't know what it is in Nevada, 
but there was, yeah, there there was a police report filed. So Stallone accusations against Stallone says he says it's totally false. No one made him aware of it. You know, I how how are we to how are we to evaluate these things? Uh, how are we to really know? <laughs> you know, I sit here and I just it's so disappointing that there's so much of this in the country for people that are so, you know, when you think about it, these powerful, wealthy people, that's really what we're talking about here for the most part with these allegations. They've been so blessed and so lucky and are, there's something with many of them. Again, I don't know if Stallone's, if this is true or not about Stallone and we may never know, but with many of them, with the Weinsteins, the Kevin Spaceys, the ones where we know that there was clearly sexual assault, such a, a lack of consideration for one's fellow human being, you know, such a lack of respect for, for women and uh, a lack of decency and honor and integrity from people who have been so lucky in their careers and in their lives. You know, these predatory men are just, just acting like savages. All right, coming up next, we are going to talk to uh, Gordon Chang. I've been meaning to get him on the show to get his reaction to Trump's visit to east asia you know gordon calls him like he sees him so we'll get into that stay with me i don't think that the impression left in china is that america is strong and president trump is strong he didn't bring up a lot of the issues that have been traditional irritants in the relationship and on north korea the chinese papers now are talking about how this was a win for president xi because he didn't push him and there hasn't been a change on the ground oh they're hard at work over at cnn trying to convince at least their viewership the fake news is trying to tell people that President Trump's visit to Asia was a failure and that the other side of the table got the better of him in these nego- in these discussions and possible negotiations. Well, what is the truth of the matter here? We've got the man who could answer that question for us. Gordon Chang is online. He is the author of The Coming Collapse of China and Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World. Go to GordonChang.com for more of his latest. Gordon, great to have you, sir. Thank you so much, Buck. Okay, so what, what, what do you say to those who are taking the position, as, as we had in that, in that clip there, that, you know, Trump's visit uh, wasn't successful and, and she got the better of him, as in Xi Jinping? Yes, I think uh, President Trump's trip had some pretty very high highs and some pretty low lows. Um, it started out very well in Tokyo and Seoul. Uh, Seoul was especially difficult because South Korean President Moon Jae-in looked like he was trying to defect to China, and uh, President Trump corralled him. Um, I think that uh, the president articulated a realistic vision of trade when he was at the APEC summit in Da Nang, and I think he did a good job in working with Rodrigo Duterte, the colorful and very difficult president of the Philippines. Where President Trump wilted, from all that we can tell, is in Beijing, at least in the public statements that he made. Uh, behind the scenes, U.S. policy, I think, remained strong. Um, the Chinese were not able to push the United States in, in unwelcome directions because uh, administration officials just let the Chinese know um, where they stood. So that's good. But nonetheless, um, this is one place where I think President Trump should have been uh, forthright in public uh, as well as in private. So, Gordon, what were the what were the mistakes then that were made here? I mean, what could Trump have done differently with respect to China? I think that he uh, should have talked much tougher on trade, and certainly he should not have implied um, that it was okay for China to use predatory trade practices to put American workers out on the streets and American businesses into bankruptcy. 
he said that, uh, you know, this is something that he would have done, uh, taken advantage of China if he had the opportunity. Um, that's not the way trade should work, uh, and the president shouldn't have articulated it in that fashion. Also, I never like it when anyone, uh, any American criticizes other Americans on foreign soil. What Trump said about his predecessors on trade when he was in Beijing is certainly 100% correct. His predecessors did not do a very good job in defending American interests, but we did not need to hear that from the American president while he was on Chinese soil. And also, I don't like the praise for uh, Xi Jinping, who is an autocrat, becoming a dictator, someone who is moving his country in opposition to the United States. So we do not need legitimization of China's political system from the American leader. But, um, you know, all in all, this was a very good trip for the United States, uh, especially in, as I mentioned, uh, South Korea, Japan, Vietnam, and the Philippines. So I give the president high marks overall for a very difficult uh, and grueling trip. Where do you think things are headed right now with North Korea? I, I think last time we had you on, Gordon, there was talk of, uh, of trying to establish a I think it was a 60-day freeze uh, with North Korea as a confidence-building measure. Where does all of that stand now? Yeah, um, people have been talking about um, initiating dialogue with the North Koreans. And American diplomats have been saying that as a sign of good faith, the North Koreans um, should uh, freeze their activities. Um, and, and indeed, the North Koreans have not been testing missiles since September 15th. They haven't detonated a nuke since September 3. Uh, I think that there are um, reasons that relate to uh, China corralling uh, the North Koreans in the run-up to the 19th National Party Congress in Beijing. And the Chinese just did not want anything to disrupt the flow. So I think this is more not North Korea behaving, but the Chinese telling them that there would be no provocations during a sensitive period in the Chinese political calendar. Um, President Trump's policy on North Korea, a lot of people criticize it, but I actually think it's quite good because what he's been doing um, since the spring has been trying to cut off the flow of money to Pyongyang. And he has been, at least in his initial efforts, successful. We're hearing some anecdotal evidence, not confirmed, but nonetheless, a lot of it suggesting that the regime is running out of cash here and there. So, for instance, junior officials in Pyongyang who are part of a favored class um, are rumored not to be getting their rations from the public distribution system. If that's indeed the case, that is stunning uh, and is basically a sign of success of American policy. We're speaking to Gordon Chang, author of Nuclear Showdown, North Korea, takes on the world, and uh, he writes at a bunch of places, including GordonChang.com. So, Gordon, going forward, in terms of administration priorities and dealing uh, with the the East Asia pivot that was supposed to happen, the previous administration did not in any meaningful sense. What would you, uh, if, if I could get you a few moments with the president, what would you tell him about what the goal should be for the next, let's say, 12 months or so? Well, this is going to be a period where North Korea will get the capability to uh, land a ballistic missile on American soil with a nuclear warhead. Um, I believe that what the president should be doing is redoubling his efforts to cut off those money flows to North Korea. And that includes imposing costs on China if the Chinese are not going to help us. There are some indications that Beijing is still being obstinate, despite some progress um, that we've seen 
Um, the Chinese are just not moving far enough. They're not moving fast enough. I think that President Trump needs to use all the elements of American power, short of the use of force, to get the Chinese um, to move in a much better direction. Uh, and that, include, that may include, for instance, um, uh, enforcing his September 21 executive order, which tells the world, if you do business with North Korea, you can't do business with the United States. And if Chinese banks have gone back to money laundering for the North Koreans, then we need to cut them off from the global financial system by declaring them to be primary money laundering concerns. Now, Gordon, I'm not an I'm not an econ I'm not an econ guy, but I I know some people I work with some people who follow the markets very closely, and they are really concerned about the state of the overheated market in this uh, in this country right now on on a whole bunch of levels, uh, enormous amount of debt, enormous. Uh, bubble in, in, well, you can argue there are bubbles in the stock market and student loans, a whole bunch of places, and they think there's an economic reset coming. I'm just wondering, I, I feel like that means that there's some urgency to dealing with these China-U.S. problems that you're laying out, because the moment that the U.S. feels like it's going into a, a recession, no one's going to want to hear about how we might have to deal with a little bit of disruption in trade with China. Well, yes, and, and I certainly understand that. But I do believe that the lives of Americans are much more important. Than oh, no, I, I would agree. I'm just wondering, are, is that a concern that you have as well? Do you, do you think that's is, is that fair to be worried that we don't have all we don't have that time is not on our side when it comes to confronting the Chinese and their uh, their tactics with regard to trade and, and the what, what you've declared to be a trade war that's just one sided? Yeah, well, yeah, of course I'm concerned, um, but um, China has so much more in the way of problems than we do. Um, they're heading to a systemic debt crisis, perhaps the worst in world history. Um, they've only been able to keep up growth because of accumulating debt at an unprecedented pace last year. They're continuing that this year. They have no solutions to it. Um, they're going to have their 2008 crisis, but it's only going to be worse because they delayed it. Um, and the, the statements from the Chinese Central Bank last month about how China is facing a Minsky moment, that's the moment when asset values collapse, is stunning, because this came from uh, the head of the Central Bank in China. Um, we also saw some figures from the Central Bank about the accumulation of debt uh, in China, the figures much worse than um, people thought. Um, he, Zhou Xiaochuan, the governor of the Central Bank, released... Uh, uh, figure for off-balance sheet debt, which just took everybody by surprise, basically about $38, 39000000000000 trillion um, in renminbi uh, terms. Uh, this, is, this is something where, um, yes, the United States has problems. I worry about them, um, but um, they are, our problems are nothing in comparison to China's. Yeah, no, I, I was just trying to get it. It feels to me like right now when things are good is when we'd want to deal with the China problems and not wait until there's a major downturn, because then you'll have people that are focused on a whole bunch, a whole bunch of other things. And I, I think the downturn is coming here, so that's a separate issue. But, uh, Gordon, one last thing for you before we let you go. If China does have, um, you just mentioned some pretty scary economic scenarios in their point of view, if that happens, history says that when countries have major economic disruptions, Military conflict is sometimes a, a way of either trying to get out of it or at least trying to distract the population. Uh, given Xi Jinping's strength inside of China right now as a leader and, and what's just happened with, uh, with, within the, the party, do you think that there's a possibility that if things got really rough economically in China, there could be 
a military repercussion, not necessarily with us, but with somebody, maybe the Taiwanese, maybe somebody else. Or maybe us. Yes, I think that that's a real possibility. Um, the Chinese military has become so much more influential in the Chinese political system because Xi Jinping looks to them for political support. The danger right now is that Xi Jinping is a very ambitious, um, very aggressive man, um, and he has made himself responsible for everything in China. As his critics uh, sometimes deride him, he's the chairman of everything. That means when things go well for China, he gets a lot of credit, but when things go wrong, and they will go wrong, um, then he is going to be held responsible. You're going to see political turmoil as his adversaries try to even the score. This is um, exceedingly dangerous. Gordon Chang is the author of The Coming Collapse of China. Also check out his latest commentary at gordonchang.com. Gordon, thank you so much for your time. Good to talk to you. Thank you, Buck. Team, we're going to hit a break. When we come back, I'll give you some thoughts on Hillary's thoughts on whether there should be an investigation opened into her Clinton Foundation and Uranium One dealings. Uh, Here's a little preview. Well, Maybe I should pose a question to you. Do you think she's okay with this? I'm going to, we'll answer that. You know? <laughs> I mean, clearly she's not. But we'll, we'll, we'll address her feelings on this on the other side of the break, and then we will get into some Team Buck Speaks. So stay with me. Well, I regret deeply that uh, this appears to be uh, the politicization of the Justice Department and our justice system. Uh, this the Uranium One story has been debunked countless times uh, by members of the press, by independent experts. Uh, it is nothing but a, a, you know, a false charge. It's personally uh, offensive that they would do this. But taking myself out of it, this is such an abuse of power. If they send a signal that we're going to be like some dictatorship, some authoritarian regime where political opponents are going to be unfairly, uh, fraudulently investigated. Uh, that rips at the fabric of the uh, contract we have that we can trust our justice system. What happened was they abused power. Hillary is very upset at the prospect of possibly having a special counsel looking at Uranium One. A, f- a few quick thoughts on this, because we've spent some time on it before. I, I just want to put this out there, though. First of all, I love, this is a common ploy, a common talking point you'll hear from Democrats whenever whenever they want to act like an issue is settled and, and they're going to get their way on it. It's always, you know, independent experts. What is an independent expert when it comes to the investigation of Uranium One? Let, let's think about that for a second. What would that even mean? There hasn't been a law enforcement investigation of it yet. People are talking about how there might be. But there's no such thing as we all know this, that there's no journalist who's investigating this who's an in, a, quote, independent expert. I just think it's so funny. You'll, you'll hear this, too. You know, Obama used to always go, independent economists, independent economists, you know, and we'd say, what, what does that mean? Someone's paying that economist and that economist has a political leaning one way or the other. And to pretend that there's such a thing as an independent economist is is kind of funny. It's like saying, you know, independent journalist. Well, I mean, journalists, as we know, all have their own approach to things. They have their own built-in biases and, and proclivities. So Hillary doesn't want the Uranium One thing to get much more attention because I think she's actually worried. 
that there could be the appointment of a special prosecutor. I, I think she is concerned that this may gain some steam because if she has nothing to hide, what's the big deal? Wouldn't this, isn't this about our sacred democracy? Wouldn't this put, I know it's a republic, wouldn't this put concerns to rest and restore faith in our institutions? All this stuff, you could take all the talking points about the Trump-Russia collusion non-story, but you could take all of that and immediately apply it to the case of Hillary and Uranium One. It's not a national security story, really. It's a corruption story, but that's we've got Bob Menendez right now. I mean, I know it's a mistrial, but probably going to get retried. We, we try people for corruption. We indict people for corruption. It is important that we prevent our elected officials from selling their power. In a sense, they're defrauding the American people. Right? So we, we can't just let that stuff slide. But you'll notice that Hillary, she's she's a little tense on this one because... They could very well justify a corruption probe into the sale of uranium. I mean, what, what we really want is just a corruption probe about the Clinton Foundation and just pull all the number and look at everything. I mean, and there's so much of a basis for that. It's so easy to bring together the justification for that investigation. And I, I think it's very, very possible. But you'll notice the media is not interested in this. And in fact, this was very telling. MSNBC's... Uh, latest elevated journalist, the person that they're deciding for all of us is uh, someone we must listen to for reasons that I am not yet even remotely clear on, is this young woman, Katie Turr, and she spoke about Uranium One on MSNBC. Here's what she had to say. Donald Trump brought up Uranium One and his ilk brought up Uranium One during the campaign, and it was shot down uh, so many times by, by me and other reporters in our own reporting. Yeah. Yep. Shot down so many times in their reporting. That's interesting. How could it be shot down if there's still a lot of, I mean, you're going to tell me that $100 million flowing to the Clinton Foundation with a direct trail to the sale of this uranium company? That's really? As well as, I mean, if you read a great piece by Andy McCarthy on this earlier in the week, if you read about the Russian subsidiary or the Russian company, rather, not the American subsidiary of it. They wanted the Kazakh uranium, which was much bigger, much more valuable. And that was all tied into this, too, because of the the way that these kinds of deals are structured. But no, there's nothing to see here. Of course, nothing to see. And Tyrone just pointed out to me that it is true at some level that Katie Turr became famous because Trump gave her a nickname. Once Trump gives you a nickname, you're either your career is either over or it's made. Like, maybe one day he'll call me Great Hair Buck Sexton, and that'll be it, man. I know. T- stratosphere, dude. Off into the stratosphere. Uh, Trump called... Someone Someone tell Trump he needs to call me Great Hair Buck or something. Um, he'll probably end up calling me Very Large Head Buck, which would also be accurate, because my head is huge. Uh, but yeah, he called her Little Katie Turr, and she's been famous ever since. Uh, we're going to have some Team Buck Speaks coming up in uh, just a few minutes here as well as a little update from uh, my day, uh, my afternoon over at Fox News, which will be fun. So stay with me. I had the wonderful experience today of getting to sit on the couch for Outnumbered, which is a show, if you you don't know, and I feel like most of you listening probably do, but just in case. So Outnumbered is a show where you are the one guy and you're surrounded with uh, four ladies, uh, ladies of Fox News. 
and you get to just have a conversation. Obviously, the guy is outnumbered, hence the name of the show. And uh, I got a chance to sit and and be that guy, be that guy today, which was a, a lot of fun. I have to say, I really very much enjoyed it. And I have to I have to note that uh, my pro- we'll see if my prognostication comes true. They asked me if I thought any Democrats would go along with the tax bill, and I was like, nope, because ultimately, for Democrats, it's all about getting a resistance movement together to Trump and Trumpism, and it's all in on obstructionism. There's absolutely nothing to temper that from their perspective. So we'll see. But anyway, it was a lot, a lot of fun. And, and it was uh, also amusing. Some of the people there didn't know this, but Marie Harf, who was also on the couch today, is an old friend of mine from, from D.C. Um, and uh, we, go, we go back over a decade. In fact, for those of you who are avid Fox, uh, Fox News watchers, uh, Marie Harf and Jillian Turner are friends of mine going back for uh, over, gosh, now, it'll be, well, yeah, it'll be a little over 10 years, so going on 12 or 13 years. Jillian was on uh, the, fi- the Five tonight, if you're somebody who watches The Five. She's one of those hosts. So it's just funny that a couple of my friends from uh, Washington, D.C., from my time in government, uh, was, they're, they're now also making the rounds and, and doing great stuff over at Fox. Uh, so anyway, it was fun today to get a chance to work with uh, to work with Marie and and also uh, Kennedy and Harris Faulkner. And I'd never gotten a chance to work with Melissa Francis before, but uh, she is sharp. Uh, she is a very sharp lady. Um, and it was not surprising after a son. Oh, yeah, that's right. She studied economics at Harvard. Uh, you know, at, at Fox, there are the, you come across, this is true of the men and women at Fox, there are some folks over there who aren't walking around wearing it on their sleeve all the times, but they have really impressive backgrounds. Uh, you, know, you, you, you go and you dive into, and I, particularly with some of the, some of the anchors uh, on the show, on the different shows. So not, the personalities, I feel like people know much more of the backstory, uh, but you go and you look at some of the different anchors who are just presenting, just presenting the, the news and not, uh, sh- not being involved in commentary day in and day out. Uh, they're an impressive bunch. Anyway, it was a lot of fun over there, and I'll continue to try to give you updates about the various uh, Fox appearances. I believe there'll be more coming up soon, and I'll try to put those on Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. So if that, is, uh, if that is, in fact, something you have not yet done, please do follow me on Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. So with that in mind, it's really my favorite way to... Favorite way to close out the show now. Oh, and also I'll note that uh, Caitlin Collins has been all over CNN recently. I remember Caitlin. She was a friend from D.C. when she was a media reporter at the Daily Caller. And I will have you know that I told Caitlin Collins back when she was a media reporter at the Daily Caller, you know, you are you are really talented and have a uh, have a. A big future doing this. And sure enough, now she's she's among the fastest rising stars for reporters. She's not an opinion person. She's a reporter over at at CNN. She's actually a, a native Alabaman as well. A fun fact about Caitlin Collins over at. So she's got a little bit of a southern a little bit of a southern drawl. And she's she's a great a great young lady. And I'm just I'm just saying that I've got a uh, I've got a, an, an eye for talent, male, female, all of the above in the media business, because when you're in it, you can really appreciate, especially those who are working really hard and have not uh, received their due just yet. You, you, you can see it and, and you know, 
you know, and some of my other friends uh, over at, at Fox have been, well, now it's easy to say, oh, well, you know, I always knew, like, Guy Benson was really smart and was going to do, yeah, but I mean, every, I guess everybody was. You know, I always knew that I always knew that Ben Shapiro kid was going to break out. I mean, yeah, of course, he's actually been uh, breaking out for, well, not breaking out, but I mean, he, he's actually broken out for a long time now. Uh, but, you know, I remember Ben, I think Ben was writing editorials when I was in college. I think he's been doing this for a very, very long time. And, you know, Steve Crowder and some of these other folks that I've seen making their way up the ranks. You know, it's it's just good to see talent being it's good to see talent being rewarded in this business. Uh, it is encouraging, and it's good for the country because people that are get, are given these platforms and that have a voice in the national discussion, I want them to be the smartest, hardest working, most ethical, and, and most engaging and entertaining people, particularly on the right, uh, possible. So anyway, that's it was a it was a fun day over at, on on Outnumbered, and it's good to see some of my friends at Fox and elsewhere doing doing so well in this business. All right, Team Buck speaks. I know I've I've been delaying here longer than I intended to with Team Buck speaks, uh, but first we have Gene Morgan uh, writing to me to tell me that, uh, and that that's her middle name. So I, I believe I believe it's like a hyphenated name. It's not the last name. I, I will not I will not read your last names. Uh, on on air, but bulldogs seized from suspected puppy mill looking for new homes. Uh, and she said, "Could you open your?" Oh no, that's not. She just shared the link with me. Uh, she says a puppy needs you. I know, I know. Look, I, I got to get around this problem of Molly having uh, hives whenever she's around a puppy. She loves puppies so much that she just sits there itching her neck, going, "Oh, I don't, I don't care." And I'm like, "No, you care because your neck looks like you looks like you've, you know, caught some." Uh, you know, horrible plague on your neck or something. I mean, really, the hives get bad. So it's not that bad, but I'm just saying it's clearly uncomfortable. So we're trying to find a way around that. I don't know what the answer really is. We're going to probably take her to an allergist soon and see what we can do. Uh, Sony writes in, yay, uh, I'm so happy to turn on the TV recovering from hand surgery. I'm going to watch Buck for the next hour. Good for entertainment and information. Buck always delivers it. Team Buck represent. Well, thank you, Sony. And I hope your hand is uh, recovering very, very rapidly. So uh, appreciate that. Um, here we go. Uh, we have Chris writing in. Buck, heard you read my post. Very cool. Please do a complete break-to-break segment doing Bernie voice. I don't know why, but your Bernie voice just... Kills me. Um, oh, okay. Uh, I will work on that. I, I am gonna, I'm gonna try to bring back more characters and voices into the show. It's something I really like to do. I, I the only reason I don't do it, quite honestly, is because I usually try to bring up, bring some kind of a script, and it takes. You know, I'm not a comedy writer. I like to think that I have a comedic impulse, but I'm not a comedy writer, so it can take a little while, especially trying to write political commentary for Commie Bear through the lens of a drunken. Soviet bear who also is living a jet set lifestyle and hanging out with Taylor, uh, Taylor Swift and Kanye. It's like, it's very hard to, it's very hard to pull all that all together, uh, even for me, but I'm glad you like the Bernie voice. Ariana will be back there. There are many, many different characters. We will work into the show. Um, uh, here we go. Scott writes in, Hey Buck, iTunes podcast listener, First heard you on Rush when you started guest hosting for him. Well, thank you very much. And thanks to the man the man himself, uh, Mr. Limbaugh, for letting me fill in for him, something I'll always be thankful for. 
Anyway, he goes on here. Scott goes on here. I heard your two-part story about the dachshund experience. I wanted to throw in on dachshunds or carpet sharks, as I was, I was told they're called recently. A neighbor of ours at our previous home had two dachshunds, and they were quite mean and nasty. When outside, they barked constantly. Our now-resting-in-peace Great Dane would lay around the backyard, minding his own business, and the dachshunds would run up to the fence and harass him. Our neighbors actually told me they feared for the safety of their family members because our dog Phil was so large. Ironically, talking to some medical professionals we know, we found out that dachshunds are near the top of the list of dogs who hurt children. Don't trust little dogs around kids, and smaller dogs generally bark a lot and are annoying. Great message there from Scott about carpet sharks, a.k.a. dachshunds. Uh, they are on the top five biters. Can you guys get, do you guys know what's I mean, yeah, it is true. And don't get mad at me, pit bull owners. Pit bulls are also on the top five biters. But dachshunds, Doberman pinchers, Jack Russell terriers, chow chows, and then, and then pits. Those are in the top, uh, in the top of the biting categories. So I don't know, the chow chow, I haven't seen a chow chow in like a decade. First of all, I don't know if anyone has them anymore, but they're. Get out. Are you? I didn't. We didn't. I didn't know this. Really? You were bitten by Ty, Tyrone was literally bitten by a chow chow. Bitten in the face. That is messed up. That's crazy. A, a, Amy, no chow chow problems for you, right? No. Okay, good. Yeah. I, and I, I always knew my, you know, my dad used to, to take us. My dad belonged to a, a, a hunting, a hunting reserve for a while here, you know, bird hunting and deer hunting. And I remember going up there and the owner of the of the hunting reserve who was not particularly fond of being around he just didn't like kids you know and i remember because i was a kid and he had a little and i was i've always been obsessed with dogs and he had a little he had a little jack russell terrier which when you're a kid you're like oh it's kid sized i want to play with the jack russell like i would and he would say it is not a nice dog like he would just tell you that and it was like ah or he would just say oh yes he bites and let me tell you i found out that little sucker was a biter that little Jack Russell, he's a mean little dude, right? I mean, they look cute because they're small. And when you're a kid, you think small, you think puppy. But dachshunds, Jack Russells, you have got to be on guard against them, everybody. I'm going to get some me- I'm gonna get some angry emails from some. There's a chow chow listener out there, Tyrone, who's going to light us both up. Speaking of which, you want to light us up, facebook.com slash And We're also going to set up a show email for those of you who want to email in thoughts. We should do that, by the way. I've been meaning to do that for a while. Do we have one? We have one. What is it? What what someone tell me? Official Team Buck at gmail.com, everyone. Official Team Buck at gmail.com. You can now write in emails to us. The team here gets them. I will see them. And we can read some of those off on air as well. Although Facebook Team Buck Speaks has been fun. We will add official team buck at gmail.com to our Team Buck Speaks segments as we get emails in here. So important safety tips on today's show about uh, dachshunds. The, the American Association of Dachshunds, by the way, they are not going to sponsor this show anytime soon. It makes me sad. Like, why are you making fun of our tiny little Wiener dogs? They're, they're very friendly if you train them proper. Yeah. All right, with that, everybody, great to have you with me. See you tomorrow, same time. Shields high.